This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone. This is Leon Logan-Nathan and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast with me from 4,000 k's away. It's P. Gowers. How are you, Pete? I'm good. How are you? Mate, I'm a bit tired, but uh, okay. It's been a long day. Mm. uh, I'd say that the wet season is kind of cooling, but today was remarkably hot. And you'd be pleased to know, mate, your uh, solar system generated (laughs) almost 50 kilowatt uh, hours or whatever that measurement is. Is Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kilowatt hours, yeah. Okay, so 50 is pretty pretty high, isn't it? That's a good day's work, yeah. It needed to, though, based on the last bill you showed me. (laughs) (laughs) It's got some making up to uh, do. So, uh, just on that subject, uh, have you picked up any podcast listeners that are that are looking for solar installations? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny, you know, since the uh, feed-in tariff situation changed, it's a very changed market in recent times. Yeah. Um, but look, it's still worthwhile for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that the, the Northern Territory market, while the feed-in tariff was the same forever, they did change limits of system sizes and stuff like that. Um, so I'm wondering, I think there might be some more changes in the offing, but I'm just not sure what they are at this stage. But right. someone like yourself got in nice and early, which is lucky. Ah, oh, well, it's one of the few times when I was, uh, you know, got, got the timing right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a bit like the share market, isn't it? You feel like everybody else gets the ups and you get the downs? Ah, uh, yeah, something like that, something like that. Yeah. But, mate, uh, look, uh, podcast is going well. There's, uh, there's certainly an uptick looking at the uh, numbers. Uh, people are absolutely loving weekends with Walshy ever since the, the scandal. Uh, <laughs> they love a scandal, don't they? <laughs> Scandals get good listeners and downloads. Yeah, and we've had a few little superstars along the way, uh, including uh, Jordan Sabaratnam. Yep, or, correct. Or Jordan Ravi, as his uh, as his stage name is. That's it. Yeah, the superstar himself. Yeah, yeah. So it's been good, but. Uh, Mate, we've got a new guest, uh, someone I don't know, uh, and neither do you, and I'm just trying to remember who actually suggested we contact her, but I'll let her tell us herself. Uh, so um, let me introduce you and our listeners too, Tisha Tijaya. Tisha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me today. Welcome. Now, can you tell us who introduced you to us? Well. If I remember correctly, I uh, was talking about territory stories and um, Jimmy showed to a friend and she said, you know what, I've been listening to this amazing podcast called Territory Story by the partner at Ward Keller. You know, maybe you should drop him a line and see if he's interested in your janky story about um, what you got up to last year. And I thought, oh, I'll take a punt. <laughs> uh, uh, I went on your LinkedIn and I went, oh, he's got, a, he's got an email attached here. He must be asking for it. And then I went, I'm sorry to contact you on your work email, but uh, I couldn't resist. So <laughs> it was me. I'm outing myself. Right. <laughs> well, that is interesting. And that's a great story too, Tisha, because, uh, you know, we want other people who, particularly those that live in the Territory or have a connection to the Territory, to get in touch with us in that way or any other way. Pete, uh, what are the other ways that you... 
Yeah, good question. So the, the new website that's just gone up, territorystory.com, you can go there and any of the pages where you see my name or Leon's name, our names are hyperlinked, so all you got to do is kick, click on them and you'll get our numbers and emails and that sort of stuff. And, of course, the Territory Story Instagram and Facebook pages as well. You can contact us through either of those. Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a good way to to get on. And congratulations and thank you for uh, getting in touch with us that way. I hope the process was easy for you, Tisha. Oh, completely. Uh, I think I got a reply from you in record time and went, oh, shit, this is real, I'm in. <laughs> so I'm very happy. <laughs> Great. So uh, why don't you tell us your territory story? Oh, oh yeah. First of all, were you born here? No, I was actually born in Jakarta. Um, okay in 1996 and I probably would have stayed there but then there was a little incident in which a lot of people were angry in the streets and my folks decided it was a good idea to come to Darwin for a bit of a holiday while um, things calmed down in Jakarta. So they took me along and um, we ate a lot of pumpkin here. Then my parents decided Pumpkin, yeah, because <laughs> my parents were on um, holiday visas. They couldn't work mm. legally. Um, so we stayed out in Humpty Doo Way and my auntie's friends with a lot of growers around. And I think one of her friends was having this bumper pumpkin crop. So my dad told me that for months we just ate pumpkin. And that's why so many of our recipes involve pumpkin, even though they probably shouldn't. Because um, when I bring them to work or school and people go, why, why is pumpkin in that dish? It, you know, it doesn't belong in bolognese. And like, doesn't everyone eat bolognese <laughs> with pumpkin? Oh, oh that's right. It's because of the pumpkin incident. Yep. Got it. Okay, so I've got to tell you, uh, that, that's actually a really good uh, point because, you know, we have this Luxor Festival, of course, um, mm. and it's a great one. And a lot of people uh, enter the competition. Uh, but even prior to that, you know, I used to get people that say, would say to me, oh, this is great Luxor place. And I'd say, okay, I'm up for it. Let's go, let's go taste. And the Luxor would have pumpkin in it. Oh, <laughs> there's no pumpkin in Laksa. Are you sure that uh, wasn't an anti-government ad? There's no pumpkin in Laksa. There's no broccoli in Laksa. Or corn. And there's no carrot in Laksa. So I, yeah, sorry, that's just, that's, that's the rule. No, I'm completely with you. Some lines should just not be crossed. That's uh, the Luxor golden rule, yeah. yeah. So, 96 in Jakarta. And so, when did your parents actually come to Australia? So, 98, um, I think, in May. Right. That's so, you're when... only two years old. Yeah, pretty much. Right. I've got a fully functioning memory as a toddler. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> not that I remember. They're basically right. this all on photos and hearsay. And so they came here uh, uh, as as tourists, and then uh, applied for permanent residency. How how it happened? Yeah, I think. Well, they initially wanted to come here for a temporary period of time, but even when they were in Jakarta, they started making moves towards formally migrating to Australia. Um, they just didn't think that it would happen so soon. And when we came to Australia in '98, they stayed here and. Uh, we stayed in a caravan and life was a little bit hard, but the situation in Jakarta just seemed pretty uncertain and my parents thought, no, you know what, it's worth staying here. It's worth going ahead with this migration process. And as far as I know, we've been here ever since. Okay, which would explain your accent because I was wondering why you had such a dinky-dye accent. <laughs> uh, 
uh, turning up at two will do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I grew up in Palmerston, so I got it from the best. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, that's a good place to grow up. Which, uh, which suburb? In Grey. Yes. Uh, I think Grey uh, and Woodruff. We were on the street that uh, bisects them, Emory Avenue. Yeah, yeah, a lot oh, of fun right. so memories. That, that is that is deep, deep Palmerston. <laughs> yes, <laughs> has not been gentrified yet, so I still got street cred. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so uh, you went to Palmerston High School. Uh, yeah, oh, I bounced around in schools a bit, not because I was cool or got expelled, but Dad just got a couple of jobs in different places. Um, but in when I was reaching high school, he got a good job in Sydney, so. Mum, Dad and I will move down there. Then two weeks later, he got an even better job back up here in the Territory. So <laughs> he made, made moves to come back to Darwin, but I was like, Darwin's a hole. I'm not going back. Um, let me stay here in Sydney. And surprisingly, they allowed me to stay with some really wonderful Hong Kong host family that we found on the internet. So I stayed wow. in Sydney with a host family and did year 11 and 12 there. And came back to Darwin for a gap year, a brief stint in Canberra for my uni degree, but too cold, so came back up here. Mm. Wow. So, any siblings? No, just me. I think after they discovered what life was with me as a child, no more for my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, is, what did your dad actually do? What, what was that took him to Sydney? He's in finance, so he, I think he he never really told me details of it he could be a spy for all i know but he says he's in finance and i could don't be mafia. Numbers. Okay. <laughs> he's good with numbers could do anything mm. whole different world right. and so do they still live in palmerston or have they moved since they've um they've moved to the city we've seen since so we all live around the city now right so when you say city you're not talking about northern suburbs you're talking about um, oh yeah no they're they're in in the city and i'm just a stone's throw away in Stroll park um, so i can bug them all the time with pumpkin. <laughs> and, and interesting that you say um, they allowed you to stay with people that they, you met on the net. I mean, that's just unheard of in in any culture, let alone Asian culture. Yeah. You know, it seems so normal when it happened. And you were the only child as, as well to, yeah. to top it off. Yeah. Oh, that's I right. I believe that. So you must have had a way with them. You must have uh, been fairly demanding. And <laughs> I think that's uh, a nice way to put it. Um, so <laughs> I, I, thinking about it, yeah, when you put it like that, I'm not quite sure how it came about and how they were persuaded to let me stay because yeah, I couldn't imagine that happening to someone I knew or like I've got friends having kids now and I can't imagine that happening to their kids either. Mm. Were you at a particularly special school in Sydney to to warrant that? Uh, I went to Hornsby Girls High School and it's shaped like a cake, but it wasn't <laughs> James Bruce, so uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I, think, I think they just thought it would be beneficial for me to experience life in a big city and um, just get a bit independent. Did you enjoy living in Hornsby? Yeah, I mean... It was hard. I think at that stage of my life, I was a really big nerd. So, on one sense, I really did enjoy it because in Sydney during year 11 and 12, your whole life is just based on studying. If yes. you go to a 
if you go to a selective school in particular. So that suited me fine. Um, I didn't have many friends or anything, but I, I studied a whole lot and that gave my life purpose at that moment. Of course, coming back here to Darwin, discovered there's so much more to life than that. But uh, back then, mm-hmm. I was happy in that way, I suppose. Were there any cultural differences between what you were used to and, and the family from Hong Kong that you stayed with? Mm, nothing too major because I think they let me run amok and they were, mm. they were really lenient. Like, you know, um, normal house rules like no boys over at night time or at all um, <laughs> and come over for dinner at this time of the day or something like that. But besides that, mm. they were really easygoing. I should probably drop them a line sometime, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. Let them know yeah. you're still alive. Yeah. So, so when you say host family, like your parents paid them to, yeah, for you, for you to be a boarder, right? I see. That's right. I think I think it was roughly like three hundred a week, including food and a room. Mm. It was a really nice place in Kerala. Kilara, Kilara. Kilara, on the train line there. Yeah, a lot of jacaranda trees. So I was quite lucky. They didn't. They didn't turn out to be serial killers. I've still got my kidneys. <laughs> I, had a, I had a really good time with them. All were things they, considered. Were they pro or anti pumpkin? I think they must have been anti pumpkin because I don't remember eating pumpkin with them at all. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> And you, what, at that stage decided you wanted to do law? Yeah, I think so. Because what happened is in year 10, year 11, I realised that I couldn't keep up with maths or science classes as much as I wanted to, even though as a kid I actually wanted to be a geologist or an architect. So in high school I realised if I wanted to do relatively okay I just stuck to humanities. I did three-unit English, four-unit history, and economics. So that left me with two choices, either doing an arts degree or a law degree. And, of course, with my parents, I only had one choice then. (laughs) (laughs) So you you applied and got into ANU. Uh, Yeah. You didn't think about doing a a double degree? You you were just happy to just... Do straight law? Yeah, because with uh, straight law, it gives you enough flexibility to take electives and there wasn't really a degree besides law that I was quite invested in getting. Also, Canberra was terribly cold, so <laughs> I, I thought if I could minimise my time here as well, then that would probably <laughs> be for the best. <laughs> Not a bad plan. And, uh, I mean, I hear good things about ANU. Is, is it a good uni to, uh, to study law in? Not that I reckon. anything to compare it to. Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit biased. I, I think my first few years I bludged a lot, so I didn't take it very seriously. But in my last year I had this professor who taught equity and trusts and she just completely reworked my understanding of law. And she did the impossible. She made me fall in love with it. So I would say by um, virtue of that one professor who really changed my outlook on law, I would say you was worth it because if, if um, professors have that power to um, have that effect on students in such a positive way, then, yeah, I, I don't think I was – maybe I wasn't open-minded in earlier years or she was just particularly amazing. 
but uh, yeah, I feel so lucky that I managed to cross paths with her. Well, you must you must have had an effect on you because you ended up doing an honours degree, or you, or you ended up getting honours. Oh, I think it's a bit of a misguided um, thing because in ANU, after a certain year, I think everyone automatically gets honours. Um, they somehow wrangled it so every course has 60 to 70% of a written component and that means that it counts as honours. So <laughs> <laughs> I love I hope, it. <laughs> I hope um, this doesn't um, ruin really the cover. reputation too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, it kind of must look dodgy that every student after a certain year is getting honours from ANU, no matter how bad their scores are, uh, I think. <laughs> I well, think thank you for your honesty there. I appreciate that, Tisha. Yes, your honesty. <laughs> uh, That's right. <laughs> punishing remark. <laughs> so, uh, so then you went on to do a, a grad dip in legal practice. Now, I, I hear a lot of mixed reviews about that uh, around the traps. What was that like? Oh, I reckon it was just a piece of paper. I mean, right. I'm not sure if th – there were some parts of it that were a great way to learn about the practicalities of legal practice. But to give you – I think I can say honestly how it was because the provider of that grad dip is no longer functioning as a provider. <laughs> I, um, I once turned in an assignment with just the heading because I, uh, I simply provided the wrong version of the assignment that I was going to hand in. And then two weeks later, I got it back and I was freaking out going, oh, no, I've provided the wrong um, assignment. I'm going to have to redo it again or they might actually, you know, put a black stain against my name. What am I going to do? And the result was I got a pass. The marker said, <laughs> from your the heading of your assignment, we extrapolated that you would have answered this correctly the whole way through. So we've decided to pass you. Wow. <laughs> and, and from that I think that was one of the last assignments, but if I knew that earlier on, then I would have freaked out a lot less. <laughs> and after that, I went, oh, I see. <laughs> As, I thought I wasn't giving um, many bothers for this course, but I feel a bit better now. <laughs> I have never heard a story like that. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So, then you finished your uh, grad dip and then came back to Darwin or did you do it while it actually looks like you were you'd come back to Darwin and you were a law clerk with the Department of Attorney General and Justice. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I came back as soon as I finished my law degree and even in the weeks before I formally graduated, I started doing the graduate diploma in legal practice. Then in January I commenced as a law clerk and I did the uh, GDLP online while I had a stint in the DPP. Mm. And what was that like? It was it was really great. Um, I mean, the downsides of being a grad clerk are usually that you have to do rounds. But I saw that as a huge benefit because that means you could go around to all the law firms around Darwin and talk people's ear off. And if they went busy, they would actually talk back and you'd make really good <laughs> friends <laughs> so that kind of backfired um but having that insight i think as a grad clerk in agd or or anywhere is really great because on one hand you're invisible and you have no responsibility and on the other hand that invisibility in a way 
allows you to go to so many different settings and have a lot of insight into so many different environments such as high-level meetings, client proofings or uh, witness proofings before a major trial or even just hearing that a major silk has been briefed for a matter and going down to court to watch them perform with whoever's instructing them. Um, I had a great time just tagging along and, of course, trying to sink my teeth in whatever um, legal work I could get into. But even so, I still had so much free time to absorb what I could and learn the different areas around AGD as the rotations were the DPP, um, the litigation division, legal policy, and the commercial division. Hmm. That sounds a very similar story to Tanya Heaslip, right, Pete? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. I was also thinking just um, as, a, as a person who's not practising law or involved in the legal business, just how magical that must be for someone who's just left uni uh, as opposed to the other options, um, it must just expose you to some amazing situations. Yeah, for sure. And um, it really is quite a privilege. I think there are a variety of different things you can do as soon as you finish uni, but, but I think I chose um, the right one for that. And I and mean, sorry, you go. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm just, I mean, my experience is just one of many art. I wonder how you went out when you after you graduated, Leon, and how you got around with your legal journey. Well, it certainly wasn't the same way that you did, that's for sure. I, uh, I started as an article clerk, which is something you had to do back in the day, as opposed to mm. the GDLP, which didn't actually exist. Um, but I did spend a couple of years in the in the Territory Revenue Office, so um, I did spend some time in government. Uh, but then I, I wanted to spread my wings, so I, I left Darwin and went to Sydney for six years and worked for a company called Ernst & Young, who you, you might have heard of. Mm, in, EY, in, yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a, different, uh, a different career, but that law allows you to do that, I think. It gives you options. Mm. Uh, and you also took a, a bit of a different path because then you went and became an associate for a judge. I mean. Yeah, I suppose I was double dipping in a way. Um, from my experience, after someone graduates, they either do something like become a graduate law clerk or a judge's associate. Mm -hmm. But it's not often that people do it, um, both things, one and after the other. And I suppose I became a judge's associate because after my stint at um, AGD as a law clerk, I thought that litigation was really cool. But I wasn't sure if that was something that I was suited for. So I heard a lot of good things about being a judge's associate and I uh, was very lucky to be picked to be Justice Hiley's associate, which allowed me to see what life was like in a courtroom almost every day. But things sort of took a, a turn... Uh, in a different direction because you were his associate at the beginning of last year and mm -hmm. then COVID virtually hit <laughs> a month later or two months later. How did that change mm. your experience? I think it's a very good point. Um, a highlight of being an associate is being on, on as many trials, criminal or civil, as possible. 
but with COVID coming around town, then virtually everything was suspended. And when it came back up again, everything was done by um, video link. And this poor application that the government had chosen was being used by all government agencies, which meant something like its bandwidth or its um, capacity was just overwrought. And there was some very um, frustrating technical challenges. Mm. I failed to appreciate um, at the beginning of last year how important body language and presence in a courtroom is until we faced all these challenges and seeing really impressive counsel reduced to um, video screens is a, a little bit of a, an experience, I suppose. For the uninitiated, can you guys explain to me exactly what a judge's associate does and, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what does the day-to-day look like normally? That's a good point. Um, yeah, uh, sorry um, about assuming. Judge's associate is, um, I think, something unique to the legal profession where a judge ha- is usually having a different associate every year. And in practical terms from what the public sees, that's the little person at the front of the courtroom sitting underneath a judge who types up a lot of stuff and hands stuff up to the judge. Um, In terms of what the role actually means, it really depends on what sort of judge you get. For some, it's just being a glorified legal secretary. And for others, it's basically being the right-hand man or woman who is um, perhaps drafting the judge's judgments themselves and anywhere in between that or for some um it's a glorified coffee machine <laughs> and and others um it's the uh yeah uh, there's just such a range it depends on what judge you have do you have to be a lawyer to do that role i thought you did but i understand that there are some judges who um pick associates who don't have legal training okay for their coffee think- skills yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to be a, a barista as opposed to a barrister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I had no idea you were full of these, Leon. <laughs> He's full of something tonight. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, back to now you're back at the Department of Justice, are you? Yes, that's right, in the litigation okay. division. Because I, I, I kind of misunderstood when I got your email. I thought you'd given up the law to go and start this this new venture of yours. And but it's that, a side gig. Yeah, that's a yes and no. Last year, I did quit my job as a judge's associate um, with nothing lined up. And for me, that was career suicide because uh, how can it be a judge's associate? quitting without having anything lined up what on earth could that mean and to be honest um just the criminal content of um last year didn't agree with me i was having serious doubts on whether um law was the path i was meant to follow and i uh i decided to quit and do nothing for a bit and it turns out i'm really bad at doing nothing (laughs) 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 so uh i told everyone at work that i quit to write a book and i'll you know, I was working a little bit on a, a book idea about migrants because I'd been exploring my family history last year with all the free time that COVID gave me. But then 
when I actually quit, I thought, um, I'm going to publish a picture book, which is completely different to what I started out doing. And you know what? It's October, but not only am I going to publish a picture book, I'm going to publish one by myself before Christmas <laughs> in 2020. I mean, how hard could it be? It should be fine. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> but it worked. So, <laughs> um, I, uh, I hold ass and I drew a lot of fruits and veggies from the markets. I talked to a lot of people um, on the weekends. But most of all, I, I talked a lot to my, my family. And like, I really love my family, but I, I think this is a trait that's not unique to my own. It's not easy to talk to your parents sometimes when you're a child of a migrant and you're caught between two cultures. So there was a lot of things that we didn't understand, I think. I didn't understand their perspective and vice versa. But last year when I had more time and I was doing this project that um, I feel really allowed me to connect with um, my history, then our relationship just really improved. And as a result of being able to talk to them about a lot of pumpkin stories, <laughs> admit, uh, then I uh, I was on a roll. I managed to get so much cool information and that was enough to put in a book from for me to publish. So that's kind of what happened. And so what book is that? So it's a pocketbook on the fruits and veggies at the Parap and Rapid Creek markets because um, I like to go to the markets. I feel like there's a great satisfaction in seeing just what's sold around there. They're so bright and colourful and they smell great. But um, I used to be embarrassed to admit this, but now I realise everyone feels the same way. I had no idea what 80% of the produce at the markets was. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it's, and it's hard because um, my family uses so much of the produce in our cooking and I had no idea what the blazers they were. And, I, you know, to this day, I go to the markets um, quite often and I still don't know what a lot of the stuff there is. And I'm trying my hardest to figure out, out what they are. So it is a difficult task. So, they're not particularly helpful either because I've asked a few times. I pick something up and go, okay, what do you do with this? Mm. And they sort of look at you like, you know, what's wrong with you or something like that. Or, <laughs> they don't know what you're asking. <laughs> oh, I'm completely with you. Or, or they give you the stock standard answer, which is, you know, you can put it in soup or you can yeah. stir fry it. I'm like, <laughs> what do you do with the soup? You, you just make soup. Ah, like, like do you fry garlic or do you put some spices in? Is it a... Uh, curry or something it's just soup how hard can it be oh, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. like you don't qualify to know isn't it it's, yeah it's, it's secret it's secret something <laughs> that way. oh it's a trade secret you need a graduate diploma and fruits and veggies to get it yeah so um what what's in your book what, what have you what, what did you write about oh what it is it's a bit like a bird guide but to fruits and veggies Okay. What happened is when I was homesick in Canberra, I my parents were, um, you know, really great but also kind of sadistic and they sent me um, lots of photos of luscious fruits and veggies from the tropical markets of Darwin when I was in the depths of winter and I was thinking, <laughs> thank you very much, I'm feeling very cold right now. <laughs> and I would take my anger out by drawing these intensely detailed ink drawings of um, whatever they sent me just mm. to get it out. Ah, 
I haven't gotten it out yet. I'm still, I'm still drawing, but I'm getting there. <laughs> um, and I just had a couple of drawings lying around. But in October, I decided to go really hard and I drew everything that I could. I ended up with 72 drawings. And alongside them, I would put a description of what the fruit is and its name, or veggie, its name in various languages, and um, how to pick a good one how to prepare it so you don't get a stomachache because surprisingly a lot of the stuff sold in the markets is toxic if eaten raw. Um, and then what major dishes it's cooked in in um, Southeast Asian cuisine. So what curries from uh, Indonesia, okay. Malaysia or Thailand, what um, stir fries or the actual names of the dishes and a quick summary of how they're prepared. So you have a bit more detail to go on on how to use it. And also a description of what the produce itself tastes like. Um, or smells like, so you don't get any surprises when you eat something and it's really bitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you needed all those years, Leon. What's this book. I'm just thinking, like, where do I buy this? Yeah. I need it right now, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all the um, crazy thing is I uh, decided to print 800 copies because I talked to a friend and they said, Tish, you're not going to be able to sell 300. Just print 100 copies. And I was like, screw you. I'm going to print 800. <laughs> and then I printed 800 and I went, what the hell am I going to do? And then they sold out within a month. And I went, oh, okay. Wow. Maybe. Maybe. Where uh, did you sell them? I sold them first at my launch at the markets themselves. And then after that, I was really lucky to have um, Greenies and Prep Fine Foods agree to stock them. Oh, nice. And then after that, they just disappeared and of the ones you sold personally mm. what was the nationality represented the most ah uh, i want to say age group because that's less offensive can i just say <laughs> young yuppies <laughs> oh yeah okay yeah um i think it's a i think it's a range quite a lot of people from down south i think who or, or newcomers to the territory who um were interested and picked up on the book. But I was quite surprised at the range of people. Um, yeah. And from I different interesting that the ABC picked uh, picked it up as well. And you had a you had a story here on, on the on the ABC with Anne yeah. Brown. Yeah. Um I had a couple of um, interviews with the ABC and really lucky to be able to chat to Annie Brown and more recently Miranda Tetler hmm. about it. So this um, website of yours that I found. Yeah. <laughs> are you telling me that all those pictures are hand-drawn? Yeah, that's right. Wow. So you said before that your, uh, uh, your skills at school or your strength at school was more on the humanities side, but were you involved in the arts at all? No, not at all. Wow. It's, um... it's a hidden talent you didn't know about. Yeah, I, I I didn't think it was a talent at all. I just had no exposure to the creative arts industry. Mm. I thought it was just something that I that oh, anyone can do. That that's that's what I thought, you know. And it's just great that like people like that. And yeah. Okay, I see mango sting here. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew that was going to be your go-to favorite fruit. <laughs> really? 
Oh. I have not seen mangosteen in the markets. Are they there? Yeah. And, you know, I think Greenies has them on tap, literally. You can get them at Greenies all the time. Where the but they are Greenies? It's at the Rapid Creek Markets. It's a shop there with bright blue walls it's, um, in the corridor. Okay. I've been to Rapid Creek Markets a few times to go and pick up the uh, Sri Lankan um, food from that from that <laughs> shop. I can't remember what it's called. but they've got Do you recommend it? I'm always oh, on the hunt. 100%. Hunt. 100%. Oh. And the lady's actually really helpful in there. She's uh, she's from Kerala in India. Yeah. Uh, and I can't think of what her name is. Shame on me. Um, but she is really helpful in telling you how to use stuff, if she knows. There's some stuff there that she stops and she says, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, Figure it out. Yep. There's <laughs> seriously authentic Malaysian Indian food there, which is amazing. Oh, I have to give it a go. And do you have any secret ingredients you like to pick up? You wouldn't mind sharing with us? Um, so there's an Indian dish, a sweet, uh, a sweet dish called payasam, mm. right? Which is is sago with. I must have a ton of sugar in there. Come on, follow uh, but it's got like cardamom in there as well, and it's just delightful, delightful. And it's a bit of a pain in the butt to actually make it from scratch, but they've got the packet mix there, and I have used it <laughs> oh. twice, and it is sensational. Oh my! Wow! I'll keep an eye out. You can claim you cooked it all yourself. <laughs> All you have to do is add milk. I mean, how easy is that? What? Yeah. That's cheating. Just yeah. add milk. Just Love add it. Milk. It's fantastic. Just, and don't get cross-examined on it. Sounds That's good it. to me. <laughs> That's it. But, uh, but uh, yeah, look, I, I love the, the mango steam. And you reckon you can get it at the Rapid Creek Market, so? Yeah. I mean, I actually need to figure out when all this stuff is in season because um, a lot of it was based just on November time. But there, there was heaps. And... I think the owner of Greenies is friends with someone who actually grows mangosteen, I think either in Acacia Hills or Humpty Doo. So mm. they're in, they're always in supply whenever they're um, this, available. This fruit. Pete, have you tried mangosteen before? I think you've asked me this before, and, and I, I, I'm going to say not by, it doesn't ring a bell. I thought I had tried it, but I, I don't think I have. Okay. It's, it's like, Amazing. Is it better than the Namdok Mars? Uh, it's on par. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's I'm interested. Uh, yeah. Um, now, in Malaysia and in, and in Indonesia, you can go and pick up a bag of this stuff for a mm. dollar. Oh, okay. Like a bunch. Yeah. It's like a buck. Yeah. Here, I, I think when I've seen it for sale, it's like $18 a kilo at least <laughs> or $20 yeah. a kilo, yeah. you know, even $28, yeah, $25 yeah, a kilo. Yeah. It's outrageously expensive. Right. Mm. But when we, when I first came back to Darwin in '03, I went out to this um, nursery out in the sticks there somewhere. I forget what it was called, like some tropical nursery. Do you know, that, do you know about that one, Tisha? No, but go on. I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> the tropical nursery. Uh, it's it's um, it's sort of Berry Springs way, right? Oh yeah. Hmm. I'll probably look it up and find it. I don't know if it's still there. And they sold mangosteen 
uh, plants. And oh. I thought, yes, mm. too. And a lady said to us, uh, to grow this, you've got to grow it in a pot for like two years and then transplant it into the ground and then it'll be seven years before you get fruit. I mean, this is ridiculous, wow. right? It's yeah, yeah. Me. So we did. One of them died in the pot. Protest. Who managed to transplant it into my mother-in-law's house and it turned into a tree and we thought, Wow, this is going to be fantastic! You know, yeah. like how good is this? And I thought this, the value of this property now has really gone up. <laughs> <laughs> but it 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 had one season where I think it had about half a dozen mango steams. Yeah, and then it just got this dieback disease and just died. Oh, what a tragedy! Wow. So I I don't know with the mango steams. You know, grow naturally here. I don't I have no idea. Yeah, and did you say it takes seven years in the ground before it starts fruiting? Correct. It must have felt like you lost a child. I did feel like that. <laughs> I tell you, especially when I saw the thing, you know, shriveling up before my very eyes. Oh, I, I just didn't know what to do. You know, and I'm not. Yeah. I am the opposite of a green finger. So mm. I was just watching this. This. Tree, my beloved tree died. <laughs> <laughs> Gave it water. That didn't work. You had nothing out, nothing left. <laughs> no, but uh, look, there's a lot of uh, Vietnamese and uh, Thais and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Southeast Asians that are very heavily involved in the horticultural industry up here. Mm. And they just know how to grow anything anywhere, Pete. Well, you would have thought that the uh, the climate lends itself. I mean, I know there's certain grape varieties that don't tend to grow in, in the heat or the humidity, but it seems like virtually anything grows in the tropics. So, yeah, I can imagine um, those moving from Southeast Asian countries with similar climates would, would look at it as the promised land with all the space that's available. Yeah, completely. and. I, I agree that it's just so lush here. I, one of my favourite things about this book project is just meeting people who are absolutely obsessed with produce and plants. And this lady, M. Lupin, that I bumped into, she said that 70% of all plant species are derived from the tropics. So the wow. biodiversity in around the equator is just off the charts. Yeah. Wow. So with the book, um, the version that's on your website, that's obviously a cut-down version. Um, you printed it. Is it available digitally as well? I'm trying to convert it into a proper ebook because I want to hyperlink and cross-reference all the fruits and veggies that are in the um, that I mentioned in the recipes to one another and put yeah. it as an index as well. And I also want to expand it with a bit of um, a profile on um, – the people who have contributed to my book. So if you see a random name in there, you can click on it and go, oh, that's a face around Darwin and nice. that's where this recipe came from. But unfortunately, um, my um, ebook skills are still in the process of um, <laughs> developing because I discovered this awful invention called kerning and it just smushes your words together. So currently, there are no spaces between all of the words in, my book, in the ebook version. Uh, there is an ebook, but I'm not releasing it because it's yeah, illegible. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm getting there but because this is all self-taught. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out. And while I uh, have my day job, then it cuts down on the amount of time I can do for learning. But uh, I'm trying. The problem is my day job is just so interesting that I, I, I couldn't bludge on it and skive off and do book stuff if I wanted to because I'm, I'm just so engrossed with what I get up to. Mm. Are you working in litigation? Yes. I'm currently in the litigation division and it's great. It's like everyone's hair's on fire, including <laughs> mine. I just love the feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a, I mean, it's a 155 page book here by the look of this. Uh, Self written uh, excerpt, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and, you, and you illustrated it all by yourself. Yep. That's right. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty phenomenal effort, Patricia. It's very smart too because illustrators are quite expensive, so if you can do it yourself, that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, um, my parents were saying we just need a GP in the family. Then we've got all the expensive inter- industries covered up and we never have to spend money again. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, fascinating. Uh, I look forward to buying a copy of this book. I, I actually prefer to buy a hard copy because, you know, you want to have something like that on the shelf, you know, that you can reference and pull out and show people. Yeah, so, and take it to the market as well. So um, you can – my dream is that at the markets in the future, because I experience the exact same problem that you do, then um, language barriers will be improved so – uh, vendors can just point to the literal page of the whatever produce they're selling or this is what it is and this is how mm. you can cook it. This is how you pronounce it in my language and everyone can learn that. Because mm. to get all that information, to break through that initial language barrier, I'm just really fortunate that I've got my auntie and I think uh, she's a real lateral thinker, so we didn't always get along. But when it comes <laughs> to um, fruit and veggies, she knows everything. So she would tell me what everything was and uh, how it's cooked and that's how I got most of the content. So after that, all I had to do was go to the actual sellers and verify with them, oh, is this actually how you cook it? You you actually can stew banana flour like as a fake meat? And I'll go, yeah, that's what everyone does. You know, it's, I told you about soup last week. Weren't you listening? Just said soup. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, uh, are you planning on uh – doing another run yeah so i currently i actually submitted another order today and hopefully in the next week or so we'll have a couple hundred out and um but i'm tr- going to try and keep it a limited run for this one and then in the dry season this year i'm going to release an expanded version um and maybe print a couple more a couple hundred more and then after that, I might just keep it as a limited edition um, print run, have an ebook online, but the people who came in and got those limited editions can, can you know, be proud of them. Mm. And mm. after that, um, we'll see what happens, but I don't know if I'll release local copies after that. It might just be a generic equator guide to tropical mm. fruit and vegetables, but these specific Darwin-based ones with Darwin stories in particular and reference to Darwin um you know, restaurants and locals who have recipes, um, I might just keep it as a special one-off thing. Mm, that's brilliant. Are you drawing every day? Uh, I think it comes and goes. Um, lately, I haven't drawn 
except sporadically on the weekends. But if I get this feeling that I need to draw, there'll be moments when I do 15 drawings in a day. Mm. I just I just can't sleep. I, I have to get it out of me. And without um, spoiling the illusion, mm. are, are you perfect every time or are you doing <laughs> the, this thing 50 times to get it right? Or Oh, no, it is a perfectly valid question. I I don't think I'm particularly special in drawing, but what's special is I've found the right medium to do this sort of artwork because I make a hell of a lot of mistakes. And this specific medium is using just graphite pencil initially, so you can erase it as many times as you want, which is what I do. Mm. And then once I've got an outline that I'm happy with, I transpose it onto the paper I like, um, which is basically just tracing it on. And then I use um, ink pen to put it on. But the good thing about the specific paper I'm using is that you can erase pen on it. And if you erase hard enough, which I do, then the pen traces will literally go away. So mm. it is a very forgiving medium. Right. And, and what sort of time length does it take to draw, you know, one of your masterpieces? <laughs> well, um, it varies. But I try and keep it as at a day's length or else I run out of steam. And the reason it takes a day is because it takes me perhaps 15 minutes or up to two hours to do the outline itself. And then I ink it out with um, permanent marker or ink pen. But I have to let that dry for a couple of hours. Uh. And uh, if I don't let it dry and I raise it right after that, then it just smudges and it turns into a dog's breakfast. But right. I, give it, I let it dry overnight. I erase it, and that erases all the pencil marks. Then I add whatever details I want the next day, and then it turns out really good. So I have them at various stages while I'm waiting for it to dry. Then I'll do more pencil outlines, and it just rolls over. And is is it as simple as you pick up one of these uh, fruits or veggies or you know, whatever it might be from a market, you take it home, and you just look at it and do it, or do you do, you do it through photographs, or, or what's your what's your method? I think it's a combination of that. If it's a particularly compelling fruit or vegetable and on top of that I actually want to eat it, I will definitely <laughs> buy it <laughs> and then take it home and I try and draw from life. But sometimes there's just so much at the markets. I um, sometimes will take photos of things, um, visit my auntie the next day and ask her, what is this? Is it something worth drawing? And then um, – start a drawing, a preliminary drawing from a photo. If I need the actual fruit or vegetable, which sometimes is the case, I will go to the markets and get the real-life version. Otherwise, I'll just rely on the reference photo that I've taken from the markets. Mm. Is Auntie in the food business? She used to be, in a way. What happened is <laughs> it's really up to, because of her that my whole family moved to Darwin. Ah. She um, moved to Darwin first in I think 1995 because she was visiting a friend here and she fell in love with this guy, the local guy, who ah. was involved in the um, transportation of fruit and vegetables down south business. And they got married, they're really happy. And by virtue of that business, I suppose, she became friends with so many of the major growers and, and small growers mm. around Humpty Doo and Girubin and Acacia Hills. And she still is in touch with them today. She goes out um, out to the sticks quite often. And whenever she goes to the markets, it's like, 
going with a rock star. She's not allowed to pay for anything. <laughs> Everyone's always saying to her, oh, Hong, like, you need to take this. And she'll go, oh, I'm going to pay for it. And they have that fight, you know, yeah, the yeah. Asian auntie kind of fight where they're trying to stuff money back in each other's purses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's great. Like, as a kid, I used to find it so embarrassing. And now I go, <laughs> I'm related to this lady. Yeah, yeah. The food rock star. Yeah. And so and so you've obviously met Jimmy Shu and he's probably got a copy of this book. Yeah, I'm hoping to um team up with him a little bit for the next version. Hmm. Cuz you know what? After meeting people like Jimmy Shu, I've discovered there are like secret growers circles where people trade secret ingredients that you can't just get at the market. So things I can't spoil too much, but you know, things that are hard to grow and um, people will just trade them instead of paying money. And that's the only way you can get very esoteric ingredients. So if I get um, in, in his good books enough, maybe he'll let me take reference photos of what he's got in his garden and I'll put it in the book for the next edition. Mm. Well, the only story like that I've heard of is someone's father brought some contraband into the country, I don't know, 20 uh. ago <laughs> and planted it in their backyard and now it's a full-grown tree producing, like, it's the only one of its kind in Australia. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a biohazard, but it's growing it like <laughs> it's growing like gangbusters. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, Dad, I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I know but nothing I, about it. Plausible <laughs> deniability. It. <laughs> it's urban legend at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh. A mythical tree. Oh. <laughs> Keep an eye out for that. Yep. Well, Tisha, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's a really interesting story. I'm glad you shared it with us and I'm glad you reached out to us. I wish you all the best with it and I hope to get a, a hard copy of it as soon as possible. Yes, for sure. As soon as the next run is out, then um, keep your eye on your doorstep and you might see something <laughs> around. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful to talk to you both and, and share this. Thanks for joining us, Tisha. That was Tisha Tajaya on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.